So my favorite Christmas song, or I should say my favorite uh, non-religious Christmas song, is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Uh, That was, if you didn't know, that was first sung by Judy Garland. It was in the movie Meet Me in St. Louis. Um, And most of us know the song, and if you know it, it, you realize it's got a very melancholic kind of tone to it. Uh, Very kind of a sad minor key. The whole song is really a a sense of longing for better days to come. Things are not uh, as we wish they would be now, but maybe one day things will be better. That's the whole idea behind the song, and that makes sense because it was written in 1943, right in the middle of World War II. And it became very popular among the troops overseas, wishing for better days, days when they could be back together in safety with their families. Uh, And so the highlight of this song, again, if you know it, it comes near the end. Someday soon we all will be together, if the fates allow. Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. Not very encouraging, right? Well, legend has it that in 1957, Frank Sinatra went to record the song, and he called up the songwriter, a guy named Hugh Martin, and he said to him, hey man, my album is going to be called A Jolly Christmas. You think you could jolly this song up a little for me? And, uh, and he did. He revised that last line from, uh, we'll have to muddle through somehow, to hang a shining star upon the highest bough. That's how that came, thanks to Sinatra, which is, we can all agree, is a much less depressing way to end the song. But the point of the song, and this might be the reason why I like it so much, is y'all, even at Christmas, this time of year, when everything is so holly and jolly, there's always a gap between what is and what we know ought to be, or what we wish things could be. We never experience perfect circumstances in this life, not even during this time of year. And I think the older we get, the more we feel it, the more loved ones we lose. And therefore, there's grief at Christmas, as precious as this time is. It's a hard time. But y'all, if we feel that ache, then we're in very good company. I hope we know this. Because what we see today from Luke chapter 2, the very first Christmas, was about as ragtag as it gets. The circumstances of the first Christmas were far from perfect. And we've said this over and again throughout the Advent season, that the imperfect circumstances, the darkness, the dirtiness, the lowliness that was very purposeful on God's part, God could have arranged for His Son Jesus to be born in a palace or a temple surrounding, surrounded by you know, adoring crowds and, and high-profile people. But what we see instead is humility and lowliness and obscurity and poverty. What could the Lord be up to in all of this? Well, we find out as we read Luke chapter 2. We'll pick up this portion of the story here in verse 6. Mary and Joseph have already made their way to Bethlehem to be registered for the Roman census. And verse 6 tells us all we need to know now. While they were there, Luke tells us, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Now, most of us are like this. We do our very best to take the scene we just read and tidy it up. You know, we've got in our house, we have several nativities on display and all of them are pretty adorable. And what I mean is none of our nativities, at least in our house, none of them feature piles of manure. 
But if we're honest with ourselves as we consider the Scripture right here, y'all, there's nowhere for Joseph and Mary. There's nowhere for them to stay. There's no warm or even sanitary place for them to give birth. And where they end up giving birth is what we know as a stable area surrounded by livestock. And so I joked a little bit about this last week, but in Mary's case, y'all, there is no epidural. There's no birthing coach. There are no doctors or nurses. There's nowhere suitable even to lay baby Jesus down. And so they put him in a manger. And I know the word manger sounds like a very comfortable place to be, but it's actually it's a feeding trough for livestock. This is where the goats and the sheep would have eaten their food. That's where Jesus is laid down. Now, I, y'all, I use this illustration every year, so you'll have to bear with me, but I just find it so helpful. Imagine if the royal couple was pregnant and about to have a baby. Harry and Pippa, or whatever their names are, if they're, if they're, they're about to have a baby. It's Larry, isn't it? Uh, Harry and Meghan. Y'all, anyway, you know who they are. They're ready to deliver. And so they go to the finest hospital in London, of course, and the hospital is all full, and they turn them away. And, and Megan, or whoever, has got to go deliver the baby in the back, out behind the dumpster. Y'all, that, that would shock the world. It would be a scandal unlike anything we've ever seen. Heads would roll. Nobody should be treated like that, especially them, the royal couple. No mother and baby should have to endure such humiliation and misery. And yet, y'all, we just read it. Luke chapter 2. This is basically how the Son of God enters into the world. And so, now I realize we all do this. I do it. I'm as guilty as anybody. We romanticize the nativity. We imagine a cute little manger for baby Jesus. He's asleep on the hay. Isn't that precious? Have you ever laid down on hay? It's terrible. Nothing about this is comfortable or sweet or warm or cozy. Y'all, if we take our Christian lenses off here for just a minute... If I told you that Almighty God has become human, He's come down to dwell among us, King of kings, Lord of lords, the Savior of the world, I've got your attention. And you say, okay, well, where is He? Well, He's a little baby born to a poor, unknown family and wrapped up in cloths and lying in a feeding trough. You'd think I was joking. And it's a sick joke at that. What a ridiculous and frankly insulting idea that God would condescend like that. See, it's, you know, it's easy for us maybe to forget how counterintuitive this Christian gospel message is. It just doesn't compute with us that God would come down so low that He would become like us and take on the lowest form. The circumstances just don't line up. But here we are in the little town of Bethlehem in the middle of the night while the world is asleep. Our Savior is born. That's how it really happened. Now, is it true with any child when a baby's born, there's always an announcement. Typically, we do it on Facebook or through Shutterfly. But here in verse 8, God does His own kind of announcement here in a way that only God could. Look at verse 8 with me. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. 
For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now finally we get to see some glory. And it comes in the form of bright and shining angels, a whole heavenly host, untold numbers perhaps of angels. And this is more like it, right? This is what we would expect. But even right here, again, we're struck by the circumstances, aren't we? To whom is this glory revealed? Some shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. And again, probably in the paintings and the nativities that you're familiar with, the shepherds, you know, they've got their little crooks there, very dignified. But here's the truth. Y'all, shepherds were not men of reputation. These guys would have almost certainly been poor and illiterate. They're out in the fields doing the dirty work of keeping the flocks while everybody else sleeps. They're working. And it's into this void, it's into this nameless darkness that the glory of the Lord breaks through right here. And and this is a point that we've tried to make basically every week of Advent, so I'm not going to belabor this. But I want you to think about it, y'all. The circumstances around Jesus' birth are so backward. They couldn't have just happened by accident. What we're seeing here in the circumstances, I believe, is a communication of meaning on God's part. God is trying to tell us something. That all throughout this story, God is taking lowly people from lowly places. And God Himself is coming down low to meet us there. And then craziest of all, he brings his own son this way. He lays him down in a feeding trough. What is God trying to communicate to us about the things he values here? Certainly there's something for us to see and recognize. All of this lowliness and poverty and obscurity and darkness. What does God want us to see? Well, one of my very favorite parables, and probably yours too, It also comes here from Luke. It's in chapter 18. If you're really fast, you can turn to Luke 18, but we'll put it on the screen. I think it illustrates perfectly what's happening here. In Luke 18, Luke tells us this, verse 9, He, Jesus, also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Jesus says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now think about the the story here. We got one man in the story is very upwardly mobile, successful, moral, religiously devoted, 
filled with self-esteem and confidence. This is the kind of guy we would expect to see sitting on the board of a, of a local church, as well as maybe the city council. He's that kind of man. The other guy in this story, frankly, is a scoundrel. He's lived his life as a cheater and a liar. You wouldn't trust him further than you could spit. And so, of course, the one that God accepts and justifies is the second guy, the tax collector. How can that possibly be? Well, Luke explains it very simply. The first man trusted in himself that he was righteous and viewed others with contempt, which means for all of his outward success and morality and religion, he did not know God at all. And he didn't have God's heart within him. Meanwhile, the sinner who knows he's a sinner, the man who knows he has nothing to offer God, nothing to bring or show for himself or that would work in his credit, he's unwilling to even look up. He's so filled with shame. He does one thing alone. He cries out for God's mercy and God gladly delivers it. This man goes home justified rather than the other. Now, what does that have to do with Christmas? Everything. Everything. Remember, y'all, what the angel says to these poor shepherds, these cast-out men in verse 10. The angel says to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. There has been born for you a Savior. And His birth is good news for all the people. That means for the strong and for the weak, for the rich and for the poor, for the religious and for the secular, the old and the young, for men, for women, for Republicans and for Democrats, for the somebodies and for the nobodies. It's good news because Jesus Himself came down low for us. There's nobody so high up that He doesn't need this salvation and there's nobody so down low that they're out of reach of His grace and He cannot save. Y'all think about what Christmas communicates to us that the poor shepherds and the tax collectors, they may have an equal place at the table with all the rest, because we are all saved the same way, by God's grace alone, not by any good thing we produce, not by our reputation or status or effort, but only by God's mercy bestowed upon us. And y'all, this is, this is why we're not meant to measure our lives by our circumstances. And I know this is so much easier said than done for us, but I just, it, was, it helps us maybe to just be real here for a minute. Nobody wants to be like the tax collector in Luke 18. Nobody wants his reputation or his baggage or his regrets. I don't. Nobody aspires to be like the poor shepherds in Luke chapter 2. Nobody wants that station in life. None of us have ever been in a car rushing to deliver our baby and we look over at River Oaks and say, now let's just keep on going. Let's go to the Ag Museum and have this baby in the petting zoo. Wouldn't that be a nice place to have a baby? Nobody's ever done that. 
Y'all, if given the choice, and I, maybe this is not true for you, it certainly is true for me, if given the choice, we would all choose to be happy, healthy, wealthy, comfortable, clean, respectable people. I want things to go well for me. I want you to like me. Who doesn't? But in the gospel, we are confronted with an upside-down new reality. God's grace and favor are not rewards for the upwardly mobile. God's grace and favor are not products of our circumstances. In fact, God's grace seems to shine brightest when things and people appear to be at their worst. Y'all think about the nativity, the shepherds, the tax collector. Think about the woman at the well, blind Bartimaeus, poor Lazarus, the woman with the internal hemorrhage, the demon-possessed man in the caves, Zacchaeus, Mary Magdalene, the poor fishermen who become disciples and apostles, paralyzed men being lowered down through the ceiling tiles by their friends, outcast lepers hoping to just be touched and healed, prostitutes daring to believe that there might be salvation somehow even for them. Who was Jesus' ministry brightest and most wonderful toward? Y'all, by every standard, these people I just mentioned, they should be on the outside looking in at the good people. But in Jesus Christ, that's not how this works. In Jesus Christ, we have a Savior born for us. We have good news of great joy proclaimed to us just as they did. Those whom the world had set aside and cast away and considered unworthy, Jesus came to save. And so how should we respond to such a message? Well, we see last week Mary's response to the angel Gabriel. Remember what she said. I'm the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. Mary responds in faith and humility and obedience. Well, we get today another response worthy of our imitation from people we don't want to imitate in terms of their station in life. And yet look at their heart. This is who we ought to be. Verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen, just as had been told them. And so the response is urgency and amazement, worship, even evangelism. They go with a message to share. Everyone to whom God has revealed His grace in this account is just totally awestruck. Nobody can get over what they're seeing and hearing despite the fact, listen, no circumstances have changed. And this is very instructive to us. I want you to think about this. As the portion of this account here in Luke 2 comes to a close, the poor shepherds are not suddenly rich you know, businessmen. They're still poor shepherds. They go back to the flock. 
Mary and Joseph are still out in the cold. Baby Jesus is still in the trough. In one sense, nothing has changed. And yet everything has changed. Everything from then on, stretching into eternity, everything has changed. Y'all, if, if we measure our lives by our circumstances, and I don't need to preach this because you know it, if, we, if you measure your life by your circumstances, you're always going to live with a deep sense of disenchantment. Even when things are at their very best, we try to hold on to those moments and make them last. Have you ever tried doing that? It doesn't work. You can't hold on to it. It doesn't last. And then, of course, when times are bad, well, we just have to muddle through somehow and hope things get better in the days to come. That, that, that's got, there's no, even at our, at our very best, our circumstances fail us and show how fleeting they really are. But y'all, what if the angel was right? What if today, for us, there really is good news of great joy for all the people? What if God really did take it upon Himself to enter into our circumstances? What if Jesus actually has taken on our lowliness and our poverty, our hunger and our thirst for Himself? What if He really knows our deepest struggles and temptations and disappointments and darkness because He's one of us? What if on the cross Jesus really did bear the full weight and penalty of all our sin? If these things are true, and they are, then there is real hope for real sinners. And it's a hope that outlasts and outshines everything else. And y'all, it's a hope that doesn't exist somewhere outside of reality, that doesn't really touch our circumstances, our real struggles, our real feelings. No, if, if what Jesus has done for us really is true, then it actually transforms life in the here and now. It fills our circumstances with new meaning. There's no wasted moments now. There's no wasted suffering. Everything has meaning and purpose and eternal significance if Jesus really is risen from the grave. If His Spirit really does dwell in us. Jonathan Edwards once said it like this, By faith in Jesus we can know that our bad things will work out for good. Our good things will never be lost. And the best things are yet to come. All because Jesus has come to seek us and to save that which was lost. Even our worst days are filled with meaning and hope because we have a Savior who has redeemed us from the darkness and has now brought us eternally into His marvelous light. The shepherds got a taste of this on that first Christmas. Mary pondered these things in her heart that first night. May we do the same. May we respond this morning, this Christmas, with urgency and with awe and with worship. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the kind of joy for us this morning. We are very separate in time and place from that first Christmas. We don't get a true sense, Lord, based on our own experiences. We've never, we've never been there, Lord. And so I pray for us this morning, if it's hard for us to grasp, if it's hard to imagine what the world might have looked like there in the darkness of Bethlehem, as the shepherds arrive to proclaim this good news, this angelic message, Lord, 
Would you give us this morning, I pray, somehow, a little taste, a little sense of this? That, Lord, we can know where we sit in Ridgeland. We can know this. This joy, this worship, this life and hope. Because, Lord, your Spirit is doing right now the very same thing your Spirit was doing then. Proclaiming to us good news of great joy for all people. That a Savior has been born for us. Father, would you grant us this morning um, a very real perspective. Not a nice spiritual feeling. Merely. Not just Christmas tidings. But Lord, I pray a real sense of the darkness of our reality, of sin, of the the fleeting temporary nature of life, Lord. The disenchantment of circumstances, Lord. the, The real things that make up what we are. And Lord, grant us a a picture this morning of Jesus Christ coming all the way down to share in these things, to take them on, to take on our sin, Lord, which he did not deserve, and to suffer for our sake, to give us life. Lord, what what a precious, magnificent gift we've been given to see the Savior who came for us who died for us, who rose again as Evan preached to our children, and who is yet coming again. Lord, all of this is your grace poured out. We are not upwardly mobile, Lord, striving to be our best so that we might earn the reward. Lord, we are recipients of grace with open hands, I pray this morning, celebrating, Lord, that you have had mercy on us because you love us. Let that, Lord, just shine brightly in our hearts this morning. The beauty, the truth, the wonder of Christmas. In Christ's name, amen.